Well, my name's Chris Lane. It's delightful to be here. Um, thank you for all your lovely prayer and concern. I've, like a lot of people, I've had a chest infection, and you can probably hear that in my voice still. So um, I've been looking forward to preaching, but my energy's a bit low. Didn't, by the way, talk about energy. Dennis last week was on fire, wasn't he? Didn't he do a great job? He always does a great job, but he was so on fire last week. I watched it on our, our video thing. And by the way, you guys up there who do the video thing and the editing, that's just an outstanding service. I've been off sick, on and off for about a month now, and I've watched some of the God Channel religious programming, and it's horrible. It really is. But uh, sorry, I didn't say that. <laughs> but, um, but the quality that you guys are coming up with and the video team, I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. So, you know, respect and all that. Thank you, guys. So uh, why did I say that? Yeah, I saw Dennis, and uh, he was really on fire, and I'm so grateful for this wonderful team we have in this place. Uh, but I can't, I, I would love to try and rise to that and, and, and uh, set you all on fire, but uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to do that. But I have really prayed that, although I may have n not so much energy, and my voice may be a bit weak, I've really prayed that God's word will be all the stronger. Yes. So uh, I used to say, actually, this is true, I used to say, if, you know, uh, if I felt the, the material was a bit weak, I would just raise my voice and wave my hands around a lot to sort of compensate. Well, I can't do that today. So I pray that God's word will really just comfort, challenge, encourage you, whatever, whatever is needful, and that, that you will really get that. So let's pray, and we'll get straight into it. Heavenly Father, I want to say thank you to you, for your word is like a two-edged sword. It separates between spirit and soul. It gets to the very quick, the very marrow. It gets to the very heart of the matter. It feeds the mind. It challenges and comforts the heart. Lord, it encourages it. It builds up. And Lord, it is a living thing. And I pray, Lord God, and today when we, when we are celebrating life wins, your love wins, I pray, Lord God, that your word, your word, Lord God, will touch our hearts and set us on fire. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things about, one of the advantages, I guess, about being off sick for a few, uh, well, for quite a while, to be honest, is that although for much of it I was just gaga and watching daytime television, which is enough to kill anybody, um, there were times when I was able to sit down and read great chunks of the scriptures. And, and you know, I've, I've often said it, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree, that um, all too often, you know, the way we do spiritual disciplines, it's little chunks and little thoughts and a verse here and a verse there, and then you read a commentary, and it kind of chops it all down. And it's really helpful sometimes to just sit down and just read the thing. Read, let the thing, the text talk to you, the whole, the kind of whole picture. And I've done that in John's Gospel. And that's been a very enriching and, and, and interesting experience for me. Um, I suppose in some ways you could say that I've fallen into the, you know, the time-honored trap of, of considering John's gospel as a bit late, you know, the theology is a little bit more sophisticated, it's, it was written a fair time after Jesus' death and resurrection, when people got their act together. Uh, of course, we always read John 1 and other passages at Christmas time, that wonderful passage, you know, light has come into the world. Uh, but nonetheless, it kind of gets broken up. But I, I read through John's gospel, and I saw something in it which uh, really, uh, really struck me. Uh, and uh, I don't think I've ever seen it before. And quite simply, it's the struggle that Jesus had to stay alive 
followed by the struggle he had to die so that we might ultimately live. The struggle to live, followed by the struggle to die, that we might live. Now, I hope that by pointing out a few scriptures, reading a few scriptures and talking about this, this will give you something to take away if you like as a little bit of homework this week. In this kind of week that so many called Holy Week, I often find it's a good thing to sort of up my input a little bit, to do a little bit more than I usually do. I like to do that. It's good for my soul. And so in this week, can I invite you to read through John's Gospel Try and read it in more than sort of a chapter at a time, a couple of chapters, two or three. Just take a little extra time and read it through and see if you can't see some of the things I'm going to highlight to you today. But ultimately, the message is this, as with the gospel, as with all the gospels, with the scripture, and that's that love wins, life wins. Say that with me. Love wins, life wins. You know, I read somewhere, and I've forgotten the lady's name, but this is, uh, I did actually copy down the uh, a part of the story, but I read of this countess, I think she was uh, in the 30s in the last century, and she was quite a socialite. She was very intelligent, uh, quite, quite a character in many ways, but one of the things that she was known for <clears throat> was that she was a very fierce atheist. She had no truck with anything that might, might remotely be called faith, much less the Christian faith. In fact, so extreme was her sort of antagonism to uh, the Christian faith that when she died, she left very, very strict instructions. She wanted to be buried, buried in a tomb which was to be sealed. There was to be no door, no sort of representation of a door, no sort of, um, uh, you know, no sense that there was going to be any coming or going. It was then to be bound in granite slabs, uh, set around with granite slabs, and if, if that wasn't enough, then it was to be um, pinned with uh, iron-clad sort of staples. Very extreme. And then on it, on this tomb, quite a grand thing, but very sort of solid, as you can imagine, like a bunker, was written this. This burial place purchased for all eternity must never be opened. She had no expectation of an eternity, no expectation of an afterlife. No one was going to call her forth on the great day. That was it. And she wanted to model that and demonstrate that. What she had failed to notice or to take account of was that a little birch tree, a little seed, found its way into a crack. And in time, this little thing became a seedling, became a little sapling, and it grew and grew. And in doing so, it broke open this tomb. Great cracks appeared. She had done everything she knew how to seal it as a statement in defiance of life the irrepressible life of God. But life came and broke it up. And many of you, of course, have wandered through old English churchyards, and you'll see it. These expensive tombs and edifices, the Victorians loved them, didn't they? Great big marble things with an angel on the top, 
all toppled and heaving, not necessarily because of vandals, but often it's just a little ash tree takes root. Or something comes up. Life is irrepressible, irrepressible. And that's the way God intends it to be. Love wins, life wins. Jesus said, John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life, life in all its fullness. And you know what? Uh, I think we need to hear that. We need to shout that from the hilltops. Uh, I have been a pastor for quite some years now. Uh, and prior to pastoring this church, I was uh, a priest in the Church of England. And one thing I will say about the, you know, the many strengths of the Church of England and our formal, more formal traits of religion in the UK, they nonetheless do tend to breed a form of disciple or discipleship which is very often um, pervaded uh, by guilt and shame and anxiety. Um, often uh, there's a great sense of the awe of God, the fear of God, the almighty God thing, but it lacks this wonderful truth that actually Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to give life to the world. And we lose that. That's why we need to say, Jesus is here to bring life, life in all its fullness. Now, as I read through John's gospel, as I said earlier on, I was struck by the struggle that Jesus had to stay alive. This Sunday is normally called uh, Palm Sunday, very commonly called that. And of course, there's the wonderful story of, of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. I think we might even have it on the Have I got a text up there? I'm losing my way a bit here. Have we got um, John 12? Is that up there? Yeah. This is Jesus' triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem. And it's quite a party. It says this, the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. You know, a great hullabaloo. It seemed like the whole city went out to welcome this prophet, teacher, Jesus, many thought the Messiah, coming into the, the town. Just going to have a little cough, excuse me. <coughs> and we could be forgiven to interpreting the gospel as Jesus was this lovely, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, friend of children, friend of sick people, friend of widows, friend of everybody who lived this wonderful life and you know, lots of miracles and happy times. And then he rides into you know, Jerusalem on this great crowd, flood of, of, of enthusiasm. And then it all begins to go horribly pear-shaped. And by Friday, he's hanging on a tree dying as a criminal. It all goes horribly wrong at the end. That is a naive interpretation of the gospel. Because in terms of John's gospel, actually, it's a struggle for Jesus to live. John chapter 3, verse 19 says this, and I think I've got this. Uh, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And there are three 
major healings. There's a lot in John's Gospel, and I'm not going to go through it all. Three major healings which model aspects of Jesus, who is the light of the world, coming into this world, and the way people react to it, particularly the religious people. It says in John's Gospel, he came to his own, to his own people, but they recognized him not. In fact, curiously enough, those who are consistently enthusiastic about Jesus were the Samaritans, those who weren't Jews, they weren't his own people. It was the outsiders who seemed to see in him something that they longed for. But his own people really struggled, even though he came to them first and foremost. The first little story I'm going to allude to is, is one where Jesus says that, uh, you know, uh, he says, uh, I have come that you may have, have life. And the occasion I think of is at the pool of Bethesda. And at the pool of Bethesda, what happened there was that this place was a, a gathering point for those who were sick and, 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 and uh, in need. Many, many people gathered around this pool. And Jesus was sort of walking by one day and he came across this man who was invalid. And he said to the man, he said, how long have you been sick? And he says, I, 38 years. 38 years? 38 years this man had been sick, coming to this pool. And, and, and there was a kind of a, a legend, who knows, there may have been some truth in it, who knows quite. But the legend was, was that every now and then an angel came and disturbed the waters of this pool. And the first one in got healed. And he said to Jesus, said, I've been here for 38 years. When the angel comes, when the water is disturbed, there's nobody to help me to the water, so I, 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 I keep missing it. Well, Jesus, who is the one who's come to bring life in all its fullness, says to the invalid who's been caught and trapped in this set of circumstances for 38 years, he says to him, pick up your mat and walk. Simple as that. What is that, six words? Pick up your mat and walk? I don't know. Pick up your mat and walk. And this man gets to his feet amongst gasps all around. There's a lot of sick people here. And it's like a ripple. It's like somebody throwing a stone into a pond. The ripple goes out. This man stands in some corner where Jesus, the teacher, is saying, pick up your mat and walk. And the news goes out like a ripple. What? He's just been healed. You know that guy? You know that bloke on the mat over there? He just got, what? What do you mean? You're kidding me. Anyway, the news gets out and the, and the religious leaders, the religious people hear about it. And they grab this fellow. And they say to him, who is this? That, what, do you, what do you mean that you got healed? Who is the man that healed you? And the guy says, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I'd ever seen him before. He just came over to me and asked me how long I'd been sick. And then he said, pick up your mat and walk. And they were incensed. They weren't quite sure who had done this thing. That's why they're asking the question. So you know what they did then? They said, it's the Sabbath. You shouldn't work on a Sabbath. You're carrying a mat. How dare you? I mean, I ask you. A wonderful, extraordinary, notable miracle has just taken place. And what can they, what's their commentary on it? Shouldn't be carrying a mat on a son. It's disgraceful. This man can't be of God if he makes you mat carry a mat. I mean, I ask you. Shortly after that, as you will read in the text, as if, you, if you take the trouble to, to follow my advice and read through John's Gospel, it says, 
From then on, they began to persecute Jesus. The next story I'm going to tell you. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he comes across this guy who had been born blind. Not, hadn't been made blind through some accident at work. He had been born blind. Jesus has a little interaction with him. He prays for him. In fact, he does something slightly gross. So he actually spits in the mud and makes a little paste. Why did this? I'm not too sure, to be perfectly honest. He puts this on the guy's eyes, and he says, now go and wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam. And as you do, you will receive your sight. So he does that, and guess what? He sees. The, the, the Pharisees, the religious people, investigate that. And they sort of give the guy a hard time. Who was it? Jesus? Him again? What do you mean you can see? Come on now, come clean. You've always been able to see. You've just been one of these beggars who pretended. No, I, and his parents say, no, he's been blind from birth. And they really start ragging on this guy. And he's a bit feisty, this guy. who's been was blind and now can see. He says, to him, he says to them, all I know is this. Once I was blind, but now I see. Why don't you become one of his disciples? Well, with that, that's the worst thing they could say. They went mental. Pressure's building up. And there's this kind of ongoing commentary. Chapter 8, verse 59, they try to stone him. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 25, they're trying to kill him. Chapter 9, chapter 10, 31, they try to stone him. Jesus is it's almost becoming a game of cat and mouse. Sometimes his disciples will go into the city to check whether it's okay. Then Jesus comes in and he comes and visits his friends. He visits people. He heals people. He ministers. He teaches. Suddenly he'll pop up in the temple when nobody's expecting and he teaches there. And then he gets away before they can arrest him. It really is a struggle to stay alive. It becomes well known, well known that the authorities are trying to kill him. And all of this is before the Lazarus event. Let's read the story of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was a friend of, of Jesus's. Not, uh, in fact, Jesus had become quite fond of, of the whole family, a little extended family. There was two sisters, Martha and Mary, and Lazarus. And one day, Jesus gets a message that nobody wants to hear. Jesus, Lazarus is, is sick. I mean, he's really sick. It's not man flu. He's really sick. Will you please come? And so the disciples, because they know that Jesus loves Lazarus, loves the family, expect them to sort of set off. But Jesus seems strangely, well, not reluctant, but he buys his time. In fact, two or three days go by. And eventually, word comes that Lazarus has died. Then all of a sudden, it's as if something clicks in Jesus. Whereas he has avoided confrontation, and you'll see that in the text, suddenly something clicks. He says, Lazarus has died to bring glory. His death will bring glory. And suddenly, this sense of urgency comes across Jesus. 
And suddenly, he needs to go to see Lazarus. And we pick up the story then in, uh, where are we? Verse, uh, oh, excuse me, sorry. Verse 17, John 11. I'm just going to read it through. <coughs> Jesus and his entourage, his disciples arrive. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Mark that. Jesus said, I have come to bring you life in all its fullness. He heals and sets free and delivers and blesses a man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He makes a man born blind see. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, said Jesus, will live, even though he die. And those who believe, and those whoever believe by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And then Martha says, yes, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. We need to just pause there to do a little bit of theology. It is extraordinary to me that in the Martha and Mary story, and some of you know a little bit about Martha and Mary, there is an occasion where, where Jesus goes to Martha and Mary's home. And during that visit... Mary comes and sits at Jesus' feet and hangs on his every word. She's a real fan. And Martha, bless her heart, has got a you know, heightened sense of responsibility like many of us. She realizes that the great teacher has come and the house is full of guests and she's busy you know, cooking up some, some sort of delicious meal. Anyway, after a while, she gets a little resentful because Mary's supposed to be helping her, but Mary's sat at Jesus' feet. So she appears in the doorway, you know, with a cloud of steam billowing out behind her, no doubt, and sort of lank hair hanging across her forehead, hands on her hips, and says, Jesus, would you mind telling that sister of mine to come and help me? Jesus is actually quite protective of Mary, bless her, who sat at his feet. At this point, he says, do you know what, Martha, bless your heart. But Mary, who is just basking in my presence, Hanging on my every word. She's actually made the right choice. So she can stay there. Well, I'm not sure that that blessed Martha particularly. But I dare say they all ate eventually. And clearly, actually, they became all great friends. Which is why this story sort of is so poignant in many ways. But what I want you to notice here is that actually this conversation is taking place not between Mary and Jesus, who you might expect... Because Mary's actually at home. Lazarus, her brother, has died. She's absolutely devastated. She's disillusioned. She's hurting. 
It was all about the presence of Jesus, and now she just doesn't want to see anybody. She's just at home. But it's Martha, the one who was running around, kind of trying to get things done, trying to make a meal for all these people. It's Martha who actually goes out to meet Jesus. And what is so wonderful and so honoring here is that the Holy Spirit, John the author here, puts into Martha's mouth a creedal statement. Now, these are absolutely key. They're like jewels. It's a creedal statement. It is the very center, the very heart. It's the very essence of revelation in terms of who Jesus is. Yeah, we know he's a teacher, a prophet, a good guy, a nice guy, friend of kids and children and all the rest of it. But actually, in this moment, Martha says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. There's only one other creedal statement like this, and Peter says this, some of you will recall, when Jesus asks his very own disciples, who are literally with him day and night, said, who do people say that I am? And they feed him back some stuff, and then he says, who do you say that I am? And it is Peter who, in that occasion, has given this creedal statement. You are the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of the living God, he says. And Jesus says, man and God, you know, no man has revealed this to you, only the Holy Spirit. This, the, the, these are weighty and extraordinary statements because people were saying, who is this person? And Martha gets it, the busy one, the workaholic. She gets it. She gets the honor of this revelation. I love that. It's very, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful moment. Verse 28, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here and he's asking for you. Basically, Jesus is saying, look, go and get, where is she? Look, go and get Mary, bless her heart. Don't, we can't leave her sulking there. Go and get her. So Martha's dispatched to go and get Mary. And Mary, when, you know, Mary's got a heart, a soft heart, a passionate heart. She's quite an emotional person. You know, a little bit up and a little bit down, you know, that goes with the, you know, the type. It says this, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, they noticed how quickly she got up and went out. And they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, for her, it was all about the presence of Jesus. Jesus has to be here, otherwise nothing happens. And because Jesus didn't come, my brother died, and that's the end of it. Martha, though, has a deeper faith, I put it to you. Martha knows that it's not about Jesus' presence, it's about who Jesus is. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Only say the word, and my brother will live. It's just a different place on the journey. So here we have it. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he said. Come and see, they replied. Shortest verse in the Bible often said, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them, a little less gracious, 
said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man? And, and you know, couldn't, the guy who did that kept him from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, Jesus said. But Lord, said Martha, but Lord, by this time, there's a bad odor for he's been there for four days. Rather like Simon, who came out with this incredible creedal statement, then sort of kind of gets it wrong and gets a rebuke from Jesus. Martha, you know, a flash of wonderful divine inspiration. You know, who, now she's saying, look, uh, this is getting a bit weird, and he smells, so let's leave the stone where he is. Anyway, Jesus says to him, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, Lazarus, Come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped in strips of linen. And the grave cloth was still around his face. Everybody was in a state of shock. It was Jesus' voice that broke the silence. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now from this day on, this was the last straw. From this day on, the uh, antagonism, the resistance, the arrogant resistance of the Pharisees became murderous. And curiously enough, Jesus then was no longer ducking and diving and hiding and bobbing and weaving. It was as if Jesus just went for it. He sp- you will read it when you read through the scriptures. He teaches his disciples, saying, I'm going to die. Make no bones about it. So for all those weeks, years, months even, that Jesus has been struggling to live, now it's as if he's struggling to die. He's, it's like he's picking a fight. And the, you know, the, the religious leaders, this was absolutely the last story. He's raising the dead now, for heaven's sake. We've got to do something. I'm not going to spoil the story by, by, by unpacking the rationale. There was a little bit of a rationale that's kind of interesting. That's the next little passage. You can read that yourself. So Jesus, who says, I am the resurrection and the life, who's then suddenly struggles to die. And of course, if you've read the scripture and if you'll journey through with us on Friday when we have this little meditation, you will realize the effort that Jesus had to go to die. He could have got out of it. There were occasions when he could have wriggled free. There were occasions when, you know, if he'd said the right things to Pontius Pilate, he would have been let loose, in fact, Evidence would suggest that Pontius Pilate knew what the Jews were about and wanted to, to let Jesus loose just to provoke them. But Jesus 
said all the wrong things, meaning he, he seemed to say things that would simply get him into deeper trouble. So why the change? I said at the beginning, for Jesus, it was a struggle to live. Then it became a struggle to die. Because Jesus had to die on his own terms. He couldn't die as a result of a brick being lobbed over a wall that caught him on the back of the head and bingo, that's the end of it. He couldn't die at the hand of an unruly mob somewhere out in the outskirts and the wastelands beyond Bethany. He had to die on his own terms because in dying on his own terms, he fulfilled every single prophecy, 187 prophecies, Old Testament prophecies, about the way the Messiah was going to die. Down to the most explicit detail, 30 pieces of silver will be paid to the betrayer. That was the price that Judas received for his services in betraying Jesus. That Old Testament prophecy gives us extraordinary detail. And with that 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field will be bought. And if you know the story at all, you'll know that having received this, this reward for betraying Jesus, Judas then had a, a change of heart and he went back and he threw the money at the religious leader's feet. He said, I don't want it, I've done a terrible thing. And they said, what is that to us? And he ran from the building, hung himself. And they didn't know what to do with this blood money. So they bought the potter's field as a cemetery for those who were non-Jews. There was a whole raft of prophetic words about the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who would bear the sin of many. Jesus died for the sins of the world on his own terms. On his own terms, when he was ready. Love wins. And you know what? As he hung upon that cross, as he blinked through the sweat and the blood pouring down from that crown of thorns, as he looked out upon those who were hissing and yelling and abusing and insulting him, teasing him and laughing raucously around the foot of the cross, Love wins. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Love wins. And because love wins, life wins. That's what we celebrate at Easter, the resurrection. Jesus having paid for the sins of the world, having been crucified, died a criminal's death, died your death and mine. We should have been up on that cross. Those dogs around him should have been on the cross, but no, he took their place and in his moment of agony said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And then on the third day, just as he said, I have come to give you life in all its fullness. I am the light of the world, blind I see. I am the resurrection and the life, the dead are raised. 
on that Easter Sunday, he rises. He rises from the dead. Life wins. Dan, if you wouldn't mind bringing the team up, we're all but finished. I hope that this little exposition will encourage you this week to read through John's Gospel for yourself. Look out for, those, for, for the struggle that Jesus had to stay alive long enough to struggle to die that we might have life. But you know, it does occur to me that as well as looking forward and, and bearing in mind and thinking through that event next Easter, and next Sunday rather, there may actually be a, a relevance, an application for you and I now, today. You may not be an invalid of 38 years, but it may be that for many, many years you've lived with a, a secret. A secret of abuse as a child. That you've told no one. Maybe you've Maybe there's two sides of you, the side that the world sees, your family sees, your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend see, but there's another side, a darker side that is held by sin, by some compulsive habit that shames you again and again and again and again. Jesus is the one who comes to break that because his gift to you is not shame. His gift to you is the freedom that comes from life in all its fullness. Maybe you're beset by a, a nagging cynicism. In fact, you don't even like it about yourself. Blind eyes see. Maybe there's a blindness when it comes to your own sin and your own hypocrisy, but you can see it in others. Usually people who can see the faults of others and are judgmental and critical of spirit, cynical, have a cynical disposition. And many Christians, God bless them, are like that. All that hides is their own spiritual blindness. So if you find yourself judging in your heart of hearts, if you find yourself criticizing others, if you find a lack of grace in yourself, that's just pride. Call it what it is. It's sin. It's not pretty, it's not clever, it's not wise or intellectual, it's sin. There was plenty of that around the scribes and Pharisees that pursued Jesus to his death. Don't dress it up in religion. Ask God to set you free. Ask God to help you see it as it is. And finally, maybe, maybe this is a day where Jesus can say to you, come out, come into the light. Step out into the life that I've won for you. Maybe this is the day that you begin that new life in Christ. Let me just pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you. Love wins. Thank you. Life wins. And you have come not to shame us, but to bring us fullness and fullness of life.